0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome,
1: everyone. Thank you all for taking the time today to join us. My name is Jennifer Archer, and I run the institutional defined contribution business at J.P. Morgan. I'm pleased to be joined by Kathleen Roy, our chief retirement strategist, and Dan Oldroy, head of target date strategies and portfolio manager for a discussion on retirement income. With that, let's get started. Dan, what are some of your thoughts as you look across the retirement landscape as it relates to the shift from traditional DB plans being the primary savings vehicle for employees to DC plans? How did we get here and how should plan sponsors be thinking about this?
0: Great question. A great one to lead off with, Jen. And thank you so much for having me and best wishes to everyone listening. You know, It's been quite a journey, feels like yesterday, but if we all can take the Wayback Machine, Pension Protection Act kind of came into being 2006 and sort of started the trend and really put in motion the defined contribution plan becoming the main driver, particularly for the corporate sector. I want to clarify that. Main driver of retirement savings for American workers. And with that, the big shift being that you work for a firm if they had sponsored a defined benefit plan for you. You would receive some form of income stream at retirement based on a formula, and that big shift has been to, okay, with a defined contribution plan, you've got to invest the money on your own. You sort of end up with a lump of money at the end as you approach retirement, and you kind of have to make decisions among what to do with it. So I think really what we're all circling back to is getting back to how do we... Translate what people have accumulated over their working careers, potentially across multiple firms, and employers, into an income stream, right? And that's the stage of the industry that we're really starting to move faster and faster into. And we certainly saw more and more nudges from a regulatory perspective with the secure legislation. But why don't I just sort of stop right there and leave it at that.
2: Yeah, and I would actually chime in, the demand is only going to increase, right? So I think we're finally at this inflection point. And if I do take your advice and go into the way, way back, I was reflecting on the fact that in 2003, I began focusing on retirement income and trying to build a strategy at that point. And we really was just thinking strategically about this idea that baby boomers would eventually retire And need to figure out how to draw down the wealth that we were helping them accumulate way back when. And in 2020, I think what I'm reflecting on is that that strategy has really become reality. And so just to maybe put it from a participant perspective, the silent generation who are currently 73 plus, they had more than a 50-50 chance that they had some sort of DB plan to tap into to get that kind of steady stream of income the leading boomers aren't that far behind. So they're 62 to 72 right now. They are at a 47% likelihood, but we're really going to be at this tipping point. And if you're under 62, you're a trailing baby boomer, you have a less than a one in three chance that you have any sort of DB plan to be able to tap into. So this kind of decline in access to that DB plan with the rise of DC, as you mentioned, Dan, I think is very much at that crossroads right now. And we have to remember that baby boomers are a generation that's backloaded. So the next 10 years... We're going to go from maybe three to three and a half million baby boomers turning 65 each year to the next decade every year is going to be more than four million so a big kind of jump up in demand as well and so i think the other driver here is obviously the 401k is in net redemption and so more withdrawals of those larger balances later on and i think our view is that certain participants leaving the plan that might be the best choice for them given the access they might have to advisors of solutions outside of the plan but for many participants the solutions that could be offered to an employer with the scale of that employer and the fiduciary oversight you know, likely could provide a better outcome for many of those participants if they are able to access those in a meaningful way in plans. So I think with those drivers, increased demand of those plan participants, it's not surprising to your point, Dan, that plan sponsors and providers are feeling that demand and getting serious about potentially evolving their plan to address not just the accumulation years but that full life cycle of the participant through retirement as well.
1: Thanks. And that's really a great segue, Catherine, because participants are at the center of everything that we do. Dan, we have a large pool of data around participants going back over 20 years from our record-keeping relationships. Why is that data set important for DC plans?
0: It's critical, I'd argue. But just to sort of fill that in, how and why did we get there? Starting in the multi-asset solutions business many, many moons ago, we specialized in defined benefit plans. We'd often be sort of the outsourced DB plan, spent a lot of time thinking about liabilities, spent a lot of time thinking about funded status, what's the right asset allocation. And then as we did more and more work around, you know, how do we approach the defined contribution space? The thing that really jumped out at us is this concept of outcomes, and individualized outcomes that sort of are embedded with DC plans. And I think the simplest way is if you have a DB plan, the whole portfolio is run and you're sharing in the overall return and volatility of that portfolio, then that's translated to an income stream for you with a DC plan. you know, everyone's different and that's where the research and that pool of data helped us think this through trying to get down to at the end of the day, What are savings rates? What are contributions in? How frequently are they occurring? At what level are they occurring? Are they constant? They sort of constantly move up over time. Do they correlate the shocks in the market? Do people take loans? How long do people stay in the plan? When do they start to take withdrawals? Catherine's point, right? People perhaps accessing advice. What do those participants look like? So all of that really brings it back to this concept of it's about thinking through the ranges of outcomes as you design solutions. It's not that there is a median participant out there, right? We need to think through what's the potential. Everyone's going to have their own savings journey. Everyone's going to have their own sort of different things that happen to them in life. Everyone's going to have different markets in which they retire in. So with all of that, making sure that we're grabbing that data and studying that and incorporating that to any solution has been something that's key in how we've tried to think about approaching the ultimate distinction around defined contribution plans, which is you have ranges of individual outcomes.
1: And, Catherine, how are we evolving our data set, and what are some of the ways that that differentiates us?
2: Yeah, I think all the data that Dan cited is incredibly rich and detailed in terms of the in plan experience and so about 5 to 7 years ago we started to tap into what is a tremendous resource at JPMorgan Chase and that is the fact that we have a relationship with half of America from a banking or credit card perspective and can start to look at the other side of the coin and get smarter about In particular, how do individuals spend, you know, post-retirement in terms of what that liability looks like? If you have 30, 35 years worth of spending behavior, that is really critical to get right in anything that we do. And so being smarter about that, we've been evolving towards and really doing a lot of analysis there to understand those spending behaviors. And so that's first and foremost. Like, how do we look at that other side of that participant? How are they spending? But also, to Dan's point, are they taking on additional debt outside of the plan? So overall, maybe their financial wellness or their retirement preparedness, Isn't as good as we might think if we just looked at the 401k plan, for example, or what does their balance sheet look like? How many participants actually can or do save outside the 401k plan as well? And get smarter about that. Because I think when we think about measuring the retirement system in the United States, I think we're all over the map in terms of is it a crisis? Is it not? Because we always look at kind of these individual variables in isolation. And our hope really is to bring this all together and get smarter about the whole picture. And so not only are we leveraging our JPMorgan Chase proprietary data set to be able to gain insights around spending behaviors and withdrawal strategies, but also our partnership with the Employee Benefits Research Institute really to tap into a massive amount of participant data, link it up with that holistic household view, and hopefully gain some insights that can really influence public policy, plan sponsors feeling comfortable or more comfortable with plan design decisions that they're making because we can hopefully present that whole household view of how that household is preparing for retirement and the dynamics that they are dealing with and how critical that 401k plan is within that picture.
1: Kathy, you mentioned briefly this Chase data. Last year, you and the team analyzed the spending patterns of more than 5 million households. From that research, can you share any surprises that you might have found?
2: We found several that were quite surprising. And I think I'm a CFP. I come at this from a planning perspective. And the first surprise really goes at this kind of idea of what is that spending target that participants or individuals need to be planning for. And uh, Philosophy has always been that individuals need to plan for constant purchasing power over 30 years, and that means that a 65-year-old is buying the exact same basket of goods that a 95-year-old is, and what we know for sure is that a 95-year-old is spending a whole lot more on healthcare than that 65-year-old is, but we didn't really glean an understanding before we were able to look at this data set to say, well, what is behaviorally what they're doing in the other categories? Do they spend less on those other categories, which offsets that rise, et cetera? And so the first surprise is that, one, there is a life cycle of spending curve. So there's a spending curve over the course of an individual's life cycle. Not surprisingly, as income increases from 25 to 45 or 50 in terms of age, it's not surprising that spending grows really hand-in-hand with income rising, which is why auto-escalation is so important to interrupt that additional income going into the paycheck because we know that once it hits the paycheck, people's lifestyle naturally kind of grow to spend that money. And so auto-escalation, I think it reinforces how important that is. But around the age of 50, and again, depending upon wealth level and income level, but really at 50, in real terms, spending declines. So older households in the same year spend less on everything but health care and actually giving to others is another category, but everything else, it declines in real terms. And so I think we need to factor that in, that it is inflation. Inflation will be experienced, but we have to also incorporate this behavioral trend. Some of that behavioral trend is related to household size, and some of us who've had children come home from college during the COVID crisis, I can attest that I was shocked by the amount of food I was buying to now refeed my son and the amount of water I was going through in my house. And so we have to kind of reflect the fact that some of it's household size related, but we do know for sure that when household size are the same at those ages, there is this overall decline in real terms and spending. So factoring that curve in as we think about that spending liability and that finish line that we're trying to get participants across, I think is really important. And the other two, quickly, are just trying to isolate what actually happens at retirement. And it was really surprising to us to see that at the point of retirement, at the point in time when an individual starts some sort of retirement income, whether that be Social Security, an annuity, a pension, you know, something of that sort, that there is this surge. There's this surge of spending up to the point they start that income and retire, And then that surge continues about a year to two years on the other side as they acclimate to this new life stage. So this idea that the more liquidity as they transition and need to think about that, particularly in the context of market volatility, is important. And managing that volatility, particularly at that point in time if they're surging, is going to be critical. And then lastly, there's volatility around the point of retirement. So our data set right now is about six or seven years. We don't have a really long time period to look at, but when we just isolate those six years around that retirement decision, we see only one in five individuals really stay at a comparable level of spending than they spent before they retired, and really 56% of them vacillated quite a bit, right? They would go up one a year by a lot, and they'd come down the next year by a lot, and they'd go back up. So think of it as quite a volatile chart. And what it blends itself to us to believe is that a lot of people don't quite know what they're retiring to. And so those first several years, again, as they're trying to figure out this new life stage, there is this spending volatility as they figure it out, which you know has implications for liquidity, right? You want to be able to have a cushion to be able to handle that volatility should it be occurring within that particular participant's life stage. So I think it lends itself to, you know, you can't annuitize everything because it's not this steady stream of income that's coming to you every year, it's a steady stream of spending that that individual is doing. We need to be able to adapt and have solutions in the lineup that help people be able to tap that liquidity should they be volatile or surging around that time frame. So I think the lifestyle, the surge, and the volatility were quite surprising to us in terms of how participants actually behave.
0: could I just jump in for a second? You know, I think what we've said for years was we see in retirement plans, in defined contribution plans, we see the money coming out. And the question is, what's happening to that money, right? Is it, you know, that's got to be rollovers. Maybe they're just consolidating accounts or things like that. So what's happening? And actually what we saw is higher balances, you know, were more likely to roll over, but more people were withdrawing and starting those withdrawals right at around 59 and a half. And then when we tracked and said, okay, once you retired, how long were you going to be? How long did you keep your assets in the plan? And it was generally like three years, right? So what I find really interesting about the work that Catherine and team did is looking at the spending side, it matches up <laughs> the volatility of the spending, you know, where that money's coming from. And all of those things, you're getting another data point to corroborate all of this. And then we actually do have and have been working on, you know, linking all this together and getting down to a set of participants where we see the whole picture. And that's exactly what's happening.
1: Great. So retirement income is certainly a hot topic. I think everyone's trying to think about how to solve the decimulation challenge. Catherine, could you talk a little bit about why an effective withdrawal strategy is so important for participants to ask?
2: It's so hard to do, and I tip my hand towards, I've been focused on this for almost 20 years, which mortifies me, but, you know, there's no silver bullet. It's not as simple as getting a participant to save as much as they possibly can into a well-diversified solution that's working for them their spending behavior is going to be different, their priorities may be different, the balance of what they've been able to accumulate and how it relates to that, as well as their sources of income that might be available to them. It really is a unique equation that is hard for a participant to navigate because I would argue over the 20 years I've been looking at this, Americans are as equipped to be their own personal pension manager as, you know, I might be to wire my house for electricity. It's just not something that is easy to do. And so I think we can simplify it to some degree. And when we look at the types of participant profiles or outcomes that we see at the end of retirement using some of the planning scenarios that we look at, we see four very distinct participant profiles that have different retirement income needs and solutions that could help them efficiently build a retirement income strategy. And so the first profile is a profile that has rising wealth through their retirement. And this is a profile that likely has a significant amount of wealth. Their spending is less than that wealth might be accumulating. And candidly, that's a profile that in plan I don't think we need to worry about. That's a profile that likely is going to roll out to an advisor and is really best suited working with estate planning attorneys and CPAs to figure out how to transfer that rising wealth at some point in the future to the next generation. But I think the next three very much are in need of help, and again, an in-plan solution can be critical to helping them figure out how to translate an account balance into sustainable income that can last as long as they do. And so those three are, the first is a preserve principle type of individual. So that's a household or an individual that is very nervous about tapping any of their wealth. They're really striving to get as much income as they can off of that wealth and will do everything they can to adjust their spending to align to that free cash flow. And we see that as really typical of a really good saver. Your best savers in your 401 plans are the ones that have great habits and behaviors to align their spending to the cash flow that's coming in and dedicate a portion of that to saving first and foremost and modulating their spending off of that. And so we see that good saver being a person who might be in that preserve principal type of profile. But we think that there are probably many participants that are trying to operate that way out of fear of using any of their principal when they really should be the next profile, which is that partial drawdown, that a portion of their account value, a portion of their wealth, they should be figuring out how to systematically build a withdrawal strategy to augment any other sources of income they might have, like Social Security, It's really to use the wealth they've accumulated that the intent of that wealth was to support them in retirement if it's in a retirement account, yet they're very nervous about tapping it at all. And so we think that's where solutions that provide a mechanism to be able to give that cash flow out to that participant. Once that participant's decided, look, this is the amount I'm comfortable withdrawing, or maybe this is the amount I need to dedicate to a systematic withdrawal plan – having solutions that do that with liquidity or an asset management solution, that's where annuities can play that role, but helping participants not only have access to those types of solutions, but also guidance in terms of how much they might wanna direct to that. And then unfortunately, the fourth profile is that participant who maybe struggled to save and unfortunately will be long-lived and has a high likelihood that they will run out of money. And from that perspective, an annuity is gonna be the most efficient way to get them the most income as possible, but that also brings illiquidity so that if they do have unexpected expenses, you know, that's something they need to be thinking about. So I think those four profiles, or at least the last three, lend itself to certain solutions where it's income generating or distribution mechanism or efficient income that should be thought about in terms of options within the menu for a participant to access But I think as we've already talked about, it's very difficult for that participant to figure out now how do I actually operationalize that. So whether it's tools or guidance from an individual to help them understand how to do that based upon their unique circumstances or whether an embedded solution in terms of embedding that advice within a solution for a group of participants to make it easier for them, we think that's critical really to make it doable for that participant who doesn't come to the table with the skills to be able to be that cook effectively in terms of building their own personal pension.
1: Thanks, Catherine. You know all of this data and the various profiles really point to the need for flexibility. Dan, maybe with that as a backdrop, how do you think about decumulation strategies?
0: It certainly does point to flexibility and it certainly points to, I think, a multitude of solutions. Putting my target date hat on, you know, target dates are incredibly efficient vehicles to help people get into the plan, to default them, to keep them diversified, to keep them on the path. And I think what we're seeing now is they can serve a purpose, whether it's a through fund or a fund that's managing to retirement, but just thinking back to Catherine's profiles, I mean it's very different needs. Now if I were to stop and take a moment and sort of say, look, you're trying to help people Make the most of their retirement. And ultimately, you want to make sure you get as many distributions, right, from your retirement pot without losing money. And, you know, the considerations on all of that are, you know, some of this stuff is really hard to think through, particularly for participants, right? You're going to have to make a judgment on how long you think you're going to live. What is your risk tolerance? Are you okay eating into your principal? And also, as with anything, facts and circumstances change all the time, particularly around that. Now, I think the thing is really, can you build flexibility into a solution? And so for me, thinking in sort of at the 64,000-foot level, Pension Protection Act really set the target date funds up, and there was a lot of momentum behind that. Secure is setting up the retirement income elements, but I don't think there's sort of the one-size-fits-all winner for decumulation. So going through that, it's all about flexibility, I think. Even if you do incorporate some sort of guarantee, I think products that can have degrees of, it's not 100% of a guarantee or it's not 100% of a market-based solution, I think will be the ones that are popular. But I also think you're just going to have multiple items in sort of made available to participants who are staying in the plan, right? And You know, this is where sort of the concept of the retirement income tier comes from. I do think you'll see this develop more and more. But if I had to sort of put it all back to one thing, it's, you know, can you build in some flexibility into this to help people meet their spending needs?
1: As you think forward over the next few years, what are some considerations plans should think about?
0: Sure. You know, it's uh, what's interesting is I think I'm on like multiple Virtual industry panels over the next couple of months, and almost every single one of them is the evolution or future of the target date fund. So, with that lens in mind, I do think you will definitely see QDIAs to have much more of an emphasis on the back half, right? On the spending elements. And I think that'll be fairly explicit. You can think about it as a target date fund, and as you get closer to retirement, the emphasis is more around, okay, now we're going to help you spend, right? We launched a spending strategy three years ago. We're starting to get great traction around it, but it is a separate strategy. You know, So I do think ultimately you'll start to see those be embedded into target date funds. I think the other one is guarantees have a role to play. But I think it's less about what guarantee with what bell and whistle to it and advice and guidance around helping people come up with how much should they put into a guarantee versus how much should sort of sit in a market-based solution, right? And going back to that concept of flexibility, especially around liquidity. If I put sort of the future hat on, I think that's the direction. And you'll see a lot more. Two, three years ago, I'd say that's five years out. Now that feels like it's one to two years out in terms of products and solutions that are out and entering the marketplace.
2: Yeah, and so my idea here is probably a little further out. I think Dan did an excellent job of what plant sponsors need to be evaluating and where that's trending going forward in the near term. I think what we're seeing in some of our data that I am excited about is this idea that from a household perspective, there's a surprising number of households that – Transition into retirement. And we're terming it something like partial retirement or this idea that an individual in the household might go from working to turning on retirement income. But for many households, there's another spouse that's continuing to work and is a source of income through a period of time. And as we did qualitative research, and that's the plan for many households who've accumulated less in their 401K is to have that element of kind of partial retirement for a period of time where maybe one spouse is retired and the other isn't, or a person is working somewhat but not fully retired. And what surprised us is how long that transition time period can be. We looked at a five-year window and there was still about 50% of the households had some sort of mixture of retirement income and earned income through that period of time. So nothing concrete yet from the research to drive product innovation, but just raising the idea that while we're at this precipice of accumulation to decumulation, finally getting put together in a seamless way For participants, I think ultimately there will be this transitional component as well, at least at the household level, that we'll need to think about really to deliver solutions that meet all three of those phases that participants are likely living through to help meet their investment as well as their saving and spending objectives to make a holistic retirement picture successful.
1: Thanks so much. On behalf of the J.P. Morgan team, we hope you enjoyed today's call and thank you as always for your partnership and participation. As Catherine alluded to, if you all need any information on anything that was discussed today, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor.
3: For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts? figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax. Credit and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https: slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Ltd., which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Ltd. ABN 55,143,832,080. AFSL 376,919. Copyright 2020 JPMorgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.